0: If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to be looking at the second half of this chapter. So it's 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 14 through 33. That's on page 957 of the Q Bibles, if you're using one of those. 1 Corinthians, a roadmap for raw believers. Taking these newly... Uh, new believers in Christ from a a place of of immaturity and and not really knowing how to live out their life of discipleship to fully mature believers and followers of Christ. Let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we approach your word this morning, once again, we ask as your church that you would give us the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit we want to see the original meaning of this text. What, what was Paul saying to, to these people in the first century? But then we also want to draw an application from it. What, what does it mean for us today? How can we, we best live this out faithfully? So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark lived in a, in a home that was about 45, 50 years old. And so he was used to salesmen going door to door, trying to sell him things like a new roof, or new gutters and downspouts, or windows and doors, or new siding, and, and things of that nature. And on one particular Saturday, the doorbell rang, and he went to the door, and he opened the door. And And there was a salesman with the the name badge and the clipboard standing a respectful 10 feet away so he didn't appear intimidating. And then when Mark opened the door, he walked up and introduced himself. And he said, hi, we're just going around the neighborhood uh, letting people know about some of these great deals on replacement vinyl windows. Mark said, no, thank you. And the salesman said, I understand a lot of people are concerned about the price, but let me assure you, we have a window to fit everyone's price range. And he began to talk about low E glass and uh, the, the Imperial series and then the, the Covington series of, of windows. And Mark realized that this guy was going to talk whether he wanted, to, whether he wanted him to or not. So he so we let him give his pitch for the next couple minutes. And then the man said, so does this sound like something you might be interested in? And Mark said, no, thank you. And again, the salesman said, I I understand. Here's what I'm going to do. I'll I'll leave you my brochure and my card. Let me just get your number. And, And at that point, Mark realized a firm answer was necessary. So he said, no, no sale here today. I'm not interested. I'm not giving you my number. I don't want your brochure. Have a good day. And he closed the door in the man's face, even as he was raising a finger to say one more thing. That was a firm answer. Sometimes a firm answer needs to be given. Sometimes we need to hear a firm answer. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is giving these raw believers a firm answer regarding a question about cultic meals and pagan idol meat. And they also need to hear that firm answer. Since chapter 8, he's been teaching them On this same subject, remember at the very beginning, he taught them, I don't want you to be a headwind hindrance to other people. By going to these meals, you're actually pulling people back into idolatry. And then in chapter 9, he taught them from his own example and his own life. He said, you need to be able to to put everything on the line. There's, There's nothing off limits when it comes to reaching people for Christ. And then, of course, last week we looked at the beginning of chapter 10, where he told them to take heed and repent from ongoing unrepentant sin. But in this final set of instructions, dealing with the same topic, he gives them a firm answer regarding whether or not they should be attending these cultic meals in these pagan temples. We're going to see exactly what that firm answer is, and then also how to apply this passage today. What do we make of it? So this is 1 Corinthians 10 starting at verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let one, no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the market, meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner... And you are disposed to go. Eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of that for which I give thanks. So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone and everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved, be imitators of me as I am of Christ." Paul begins this passage in 14 with, a, with the word therefore. And if you remember last week, we looked at a therefore in verse 12, which summarized that particular section. But this therefore is the grand finale from the beginning of chapter 8, verse 1, all the way to the end. He is going to bring everything he's discussed so far to a close. So he says, therefore. He's been talking about meat sacrificed to, to idols since the beginning, beginning of chapter 8. So we've seen three chapters devoted to this topic, which is quite a big chunk of 1 Corinthians, second only to worldliness. And he's now going to wrap it up. Therefore, my beloved, which is also quite remarkable that he still calls everyone in the church my beloved, isn't it? I mean, this is everybody he's referring to, even the ones that are attending these pagan cultic meals, he's still calling them my beloved. And if you remember they've not actually been very polite to Paul. Some of them are, are questioning his apostolic status. Others are, are criticizing him and, and thinking they don't have to listen to or respond to his authority. I think maybe a less mature leader would have just had been done with them. A, a less mature leader would have said, oh, you, you, you don't want to put up with me? You don't want to listen to me? Okay, fine. You're on your own. I'm not going to write to you anymore, I'm not going to pray for you anymore, I'm not going to try to teach you anymore, I'm not going to disciple you anymore, you want none of me, wish granted, goodbye. But instead he says, my beloved, well of course Paul's modeling Christ-likeness here. He's not responding in kind, he's responding in love and and, in commitment to, to the church, how often do we ignore the conviction of the Holy Spirit? How often do we, do we bristle or, or try to shrug off the, the yoke of the Lordship of Christ, and yet he still loves us? He remains committed to us. He does not abandon us. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. This is the same command he gave in regards to sexual immorality. This is his way of saying, get away from it, just run away. Don't try to find the line and walk up to it. Just don't have anything to do with it. Get away from idolatry. Verse 15, I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. Some see this as a sarcastic remark. You remember the the Corinthians, at least these these disobedient ones, or these wayward, raw believers, they prided themselves on being knowledgeable and, and wise. And some see this as a sarcastic remark by Paul but I don't think so. The, the, the tone of his language here seems to be more pastoral. He's, he just referred to them as my beloved. So I don't think this is some sort of biting sarcasm, which Paul isn't opposed to use if he needs to. But I don't think that's what's going on here. This is kind of like more of our modern expression when someone says, um, think about it. Does this make sense to you? He's appealing to them to, to engage their minds. He's, he's saying, look, let's, let's think this through together for a minute. So he's making a sincere attempt. And what he's going to do is he's going to lay out the Lord's Supper and he's going to lay out these cultic meals and he's going to show that there's something inherent and, and, a, and a part of what the Lord's Supper is all about that makes participating in these cultic meals unthinkable. So he begins with a couple of questions. Verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? So it's a rhetorical question. The expected answer is yes. Yes, that's true. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Same thing, yes. It's true. He's saying there is a real spiritual participation that we have with Christ when we come to the Lord's table. We have real spiritual fellowship with Christ. Verse 17, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. This is stressing the fellowship that we have horizontally with with other believers. Yes, there is a participation with Christ, but there's also this participation with other believers. Look at the language, the cup that we bless, the bread that we break, we who are many are one body. The Lord's Supper It's not a private affair. We don't go home and observe the Lord's Supper by ourselves alone. We come together on the Lord's Day in assembled worship as the Lord directed. So yes, there's a a spiritual participation with Christ. There's a spiritual participation with one another. Verse 18, consider the people of Israel. And then, If you've got an ESV, you should have a footnote that says, according to the flesh. And the reason that's in there is because he's referring to Old Covenant Israel. He's referring to the people of God under the Old Covenant, not what he would call true Israel or spiritual Israel. That's everybody in Christ, post-cross. All people who have placed their faith in Christ are spiritual offspring of Abraham and are part of true Israel. So this is a reference to... Old Covenant Israel, and he says, when when Old Covenant Israel was following that ceremonial law, when they were sacrificing animals on the altar, in the tabernacle or in the temple, he said, do you, do you think it's possible that they could be eating of that, that food and at the same time not having anything to do with, with everything the altar represented? And the answer, of course, is no. No, you can't get that close to everything and then say, no, I'm not worshiping Yahweh God. I'm I'm just eating this meat that's been offered on this Sacrifice during, during a worship service and I'm here and present and I'm, I'm everything but. He said, no, that, that doesn't work. And then in verse 19, he clarifies what he's communicating by first saying what he's not communicating. He says, I'm not implying that the food offered to those idols means that those gods really don't exist. Do you see that in verse 19? Which incidentally was the, the raw believer's argument back in chapter 8. Remember, they, they were saying, I'm, I'm knowledgeable. I know that these gods aren't real, so when we go to these cultic meals, you know, it's just, uh, they're sacrificing to the air. They're not real gods, so none of it matters. We're all good here. Paul says, no, I'm not saying that. I'm not using your argument. And then verse 20, he lays out his point. What pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. So he connects pagan idol worship with the worship of deacons. And the reason he can connect these two things is because God has connected these two things. Uh, We can go to Deuteronomy 32, 17. And this is almost assuredly what he has in mind when he's talking about this. And that will become clear in just a moment. So Paul makes this connection because God already made the connection. Deuteronomy 32, 16 and 17 that we have up here is from the Song of Moses. And if you're familiar with this passage, this is before they enter into the promised land. So this is Moses prophetically stating what they will do after they get into the promised land. So it's 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 said and written in past tense as if it's already happened, but it's not. It's it's what's going to happen. And and it stands as both a warning and as a as a point of assurance for the people of God because as Moses lays this out. He's saying, this is what's going to happen. I'm calling it. You're going to get into the promised land. You're going to commit covenant unfaithfulness. You're going to commit idolatry. But in the end, God is going to remain faithful. So that's what the context of this. And it says, they stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods to gods they had never known. So here's the point Paul's making. Pagan gods are non-existent. There are no other gods beside the one true God. However, idolatry is real. There are no other gods except God, but, but the idolatry that's going on, that's real, and it's evil. And I'm connecting it because God connected it to demonic worship. That's Paul's point. Satan is at work enticing and inciting as many people as possible to substitute the worship of the one true God with anything else. That's why he calls it demonic, and that's why Scripture calls it demonic. So you raw believers in Corinth, you can't just say that sacrificing to these gods is nothing. You can't say that that they're just sacrificing to the air. No, this is demonic activity. So then, after establishing that that link between idolatry and and demon worship, Paul tells them he doesn't want to be participants with demons. You see, he's already laid out the case when you come to the table, you're participating with Christ, you're participating with other believers. Well, what if you come to this table? You're participating with demons, you're participating with other demonic worshipers. You see the connection? And then in verse 21, he sets forth the, the seriousness of this issue with two point-blank statements. There's, it, it, you can't escape these statements. This is the firm answer. This is the firm answer. So remember also, in chapter 8, when he told them to, to not participate in the cultic meals, the basis or the grounds of, of that uh, command was essentially because you're being a hindrance to others. I'm concerned, he was saying in chapter 8, that you're going to lead others into idolatry. So there might have been some people that, you know, at the first glance in chapter 8, may have been saying, well, uh, you know, I'll just keep it to myself, or I won't tell anybody I'm doing this, and it's not really that big of a deal. Well, now he's going to zero in on the heart of the issue. Here it is in verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. That's a firm answer. And that's a firm no to, to the cultic meals, a very firm no. And then 22 might be an answer to anyone who's foolish enough to ask, why not? And he says, are you willing to provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are you stronger than God? This is pulled directly from Deuteronomy 32, which is just a couple verses down from the ones we read a moment ago where it says, they have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. And then the language after that, you can read it in Deuteronomy 32, fire, burning, disasters, arrows, hunger, pestilence, plague. There are consequences to provoking God to anger. There are consequences to continuing to willfully engage in idolatry and, and essentially demon worship. That's why, Paul says. You, you cannot participate in sin and idolatry at this level and not expect God to respond. You're provoking him to anger. So that's the final word. It's, it's a firm no. And that's, that's all he has to say on the cultic meals. We're done with that and we're going to move on. We're not going to return to it in the rest of 1 Corinthians. This is kind of his, his mic drop and, and turn around, no look, walk away. He's done. I'm I'm not going to talk to you any more about this. So then we move on to the next topic, which is the sacrificed meat that's consumed, but not in the cultic meals. So we're going to to be talking about that. This is one of the loose ends. This has not been addressed yet. And see, he starts in verse 23, all things are lawful for me. This is in quotation marks. If you remember, Uh, we talked about this once before, it's the ESV translator's way of letting you know that what he's quoting right there is the, are, are the words of the Corinthians. He's, he's taking what they say and, and, and what their thinking is so he can turn it around and, and respond to it and, and talk back to them. So that's what those quotations are. All things are lawful for me. It seems to be a, um, a slogan that was frequently on the, on the lips of some of these raw believers. And it was their way of communicating their misunderstood idea of Christian liberty and, and Christian freedom. It was their double-O license to sin. It was, it was their, uh, I can do anything I want because I'm in Christ and he's going to forgive it in the end. I can just live however I want. It's, it's all good. Well, he responds by saying, no, not everything is helpful. Not everything builds up. Verse 24, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. He's still concerned about their behavior and how it impacts other brothers and sisters. Except this time, it's not in the cultic meals. It's, it's how they make choices outside of that context and, and the idol meat in private homes. But he's still concerned about that. And so he's going to address it. And just as a refresher, here's what he's talking about. These cultic meals that were taking place in the pagan temples in Corinth, They had animals brought in. They were sacrificed. Some of the meat was offered up on the altar to the pagan god. Other portions of the meat were distributed to the participants in the meal. That's what they ate at these cultic meals. But then what was left over, because they often had much more than they needed to consume at the meals, was sold back to the local meat markets, kind of like wholesale, and then they would, in turn, market up and would sell to the general public. So there was a lot of this going on. There were so many temples and so many sacrifices going on, and obviously no refrigeration, so this meat had to get moved quickly. And, and not, more than one person has remarked that it would be difficult in Corinth at that time to find meat at a meat market that hadn't been sacrificed as part of a cultic meal. So it was all over the place. And they have questions. Should we stay away from it or not? I mean, Paul, Paul came down pretty hard on no, uh, a firm no on those cultic meals. If it's that bad there, maybe we shouldn't eat it after it reaches the street. Well, as it turns out, it's fine. Verse 25 and 26, eat whatever is sold in the market meat market without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That's a quote from Psalm 24, 1. And it essentially means everything belongs to God, everything's from God. So Paul's saying, um, outside of that pa- pagan temple context, it's fine. Go ahead and eat it. it when the meat arrives at the, at the meat market on the street and you're buying it, that's not a pagan ritual. It, it came from the temple, but, but every all food is from God. You're not participating in idolatry in other words, the, the meat that was there, you can't catch idolatry from eating meat that used to be in, the, in a place that celebrated idolatry. The, the molecules of the meat aren't impregnated with evil because they've, they've been over there. He said, it's just meat. Eat it. No big deal. So the answer is a firm yes. Go ahead. In addition, verse 27, if you eat meat at an unbeliever's house, eat whatever they serve no matter where they got it. When you sit down at a meal at an unbeliever's house, you don't have to say, excuse me, did you get this at the meat market? Do you know if it was sold to, you know, after a cultic meal or anything like that? He says, don't worry about it. It's not an issue for them. It's not an issue for you. You're not participating in any kind of uh, pagan or demonic worship. Just eat it. So it's another firm yes. However, verse 28 if you're at an unbeliever's house and they identify the meat as meat that's been offered as part of a pagan sacrifice, then don't eat it. And and at first glance, we might be scratching our heads saying, well, if it's no big deal, all of a sudden now it is a big deal? Why is that? Because the situation's changed. When when he says the host identifies the meat as being offered up in sacrifice, again, again, He's not saying that the host sets the meat down on the table and says, oh, by the way, I picked this up at the, at the meat market this morning. It's probably been sacrificed at a cultic meal. Okay, let's go ahead and dig in. He's not just announcing where it came from. What he means by that phrase is the host is setting the meat down and saying, this is offered up to the God of whatever. And we are eating it in honor of that God. We are eating it, giving thanks to that God. In other words, for that person, they're still kind of continuing The idolatrous recognition of other gods. And when that happens, Paul says, don't eat it. By willingly eating the meat in that context, a believer would be signaling their recognition and acceptance of a pagan god. Because the believer would be joining in the table fellowship directed to a pagan god. So, It would be like saying, I'm okay with eating to your God. I'm I'm okay with joining you and engaging in this this giving honor to the God of whatever, fertility, God of love. And that would be a negative witness to the unbeliever because the unbeliever then, what kind of message would they receive? The message they would receive knowing that that person is a believer, they would say, okay, good. Good, I'm glad to see you're, you're with me on this. That's what I thought. I just wanted to have my suspicions confirmed. You're okay with worshiping my God. I'm okay with worshiping your God. They're all the same in the end. It doesn't really matter. Good, because I like to worship this God and I don't necessarily want, want to add this Jesus God that you're talking about. So, yeah, good to know. Good to know that Jesus doesn't make a difference. So Paul says, I'm giving you a firm no to eating meat if it sends a negative message or a negative witness to an unbeliever. And then verse 29 and and 30, for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of that for which I give thanks. So Paul's willing to become all things to all people. He's he's willing to to refrain from eating uh, if it means you know, preventing a, a negative witness to go forward. But if he's eating alone or with others and he wants to eat pork or shellfish or, or meat that's been sacrificed to, to a cultic God somewhere, but now it's been sold in the meat market, then he said, no, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and eat. Th- this is Paul's way of saying, I'm not going to be held hostage by someone who demands that I, they go along with their personal preference. I'm just gonna, gonna eat. I'm gonna give thanks to God, and I'm gonna eat. If the gospel's not at stake, then I'm not gonna be a, a doormat for everybody around me. And then verses thirty-one through thirty-three. This is the the tail end of the concluding section, having clearly given a firm no on the cultic meal, but. But tying up the rest of those loose ends on meat sold in the marketplace, he says, Give glory to God. Nothing's off limits with food or drink. Stay, for, stay away from excesses and sin so we're not to participate in gluttony or, or drunkenness. But other than that, he said, Food and drink, there is no off limits for the believer. You can eat and drink whatever you want. And then one last reminder in 32 and 33 about how we are to exercise as believers our Christian liberty and freedom. With an outward focus. It's not for our own advantage. It's not for our own benefit. It's about serving Christ and His church with an eye on saving people. And that's how He finishes it. The summary for this passage would look like this it would say, we'd say they are, they are to stay away from the cultic meals that take place in the pagan temples of Corinth. Because attendance at those events means they are participating in idolatrous worship, which is demonic. Followers of Christ cannot persist in the worship of God and the worship of demons without provoking the Lord to anger. However, once the meat's been sacrificed during the cultic meals, leaves the building, and is resold in public marketplaces, it is not sinful for believers to buy it needed. Followers of Christ may eat all things with thankfulness to the glory of God as long as they avoid sending false messages about their faith in Christ through their actions and choices around others. Paul tells them to be mindful of their context and focus on the overarching goal of serving Christ, serving others, so that people might be saved. So we've got a firm answer here. Paul, Paul has touched on it throughout these three chapters, but those two point blank statements, there's just no getting around that. He's saying, look, these things are incompatible. You cannot come to the table of the Lord and also participate in this idolatrous worship because it's demonic. Now, the challenge is applying that to 2022 because we are not going to face that exact same temptation. There are no pagan temples on Route 30 or 45 where they're conducting animal sacrifices and and have altars and are, are burning pieces of meat in front of everybody and then having cultic meals and offering sexual immorality as, as dessert. That's just not happening around here. So how do we apply this? I think what this teaches us, if we wanted to boil it down to the or you know, kind of distill it down to the the principle that's at work, we would have to say this is a firm no on joining ourselves in worship or spiritual fellowship that is not of Christ. A firm no on joining in, in worship or spiritual fellowship that is not of Christ. So this would speak strongly against attending worship services that are not Christian. This would speak strongly against participating in any spiritual event led by those who are not in Christ. This means that the church, specifically church leaders, but all believers would have to think carefully before answering invitations to things like ministerial associations invitations to community prayer events invitations to joint worship services i think the church needs to be careful because Before answering yes to any of those things, churches and church leaders need to know what God they are praying to, what what God are they worshiping, who's leading these events, what, what do they believe, what do they teach? Because we live in a time where we can no longer assume that churches believe the same thing as their denominational standards. That's just where we're at. We, we can't go up to a church that's you know, this specific denomination and say, okay, well, I know where their standards are. They have the three forms of unity or the Westminster or whatever it is their, their confessions are. So I'm just going to assume they're good to go. No. Likewise, we can't drive by a church and say, oh, I see the church sign out in front of their property identifying them as a, as a Christian church. I guess that means they're a Christian church. Not necessarily. That's just where we're at. I was once asked to join a community ministerial association, not around here, not Chicago Suburbs, somewhere else. And they emailed me a list of everyone who was part of that group. And I I read the email and I thought, hold on a second here, because I I saw names on that list that were not a part of a Christian church. You really couldn't even call them pastors. You could use the world language of... um, um, faith leader, I guess you could call them something like that, but they weren't, they weren't followers of Christ, and there were others on the list that I knew by their own self-profession, their own actions, their own preaching, that they did not believe in faith alone and Christ alone, and so I had to respond, no, no, I'm not going to be a part of that. I remember being a part of a, another uh, hospital chaplaincy group and, and one person commented as, as everyone sat around the table, they said, isn't this great? Look at all of us sitting around. Even though we come from all kinds of different backgrounds, isn't this great to see everybody come together? We can all just put our differences aside and come together for God. No, that's not great. And and no, I'm never going to lay my firmly held beliefs in Jesus Christ aside so I can be a part of your group or participate in, in whatever it is that you've got going on there. I cannot, that's a firm no, participate. So when we hear of ecumenical gatherings, whether it will be prayer and worship, when we hear of interfaith gatherings or community events involving spiritual fellowship. And we know that there are going to be leaders there who are not in Christ, who do not believe in salvation through faith in Christ, who do not lead people to repent and believe in Jesus. That's got to be a firm no. Now, can we engage in evangelism? Can we outreach? Can we have conversations and debates with them? Absolutely, of course. And can can anyone, is anyone welcome to participate in faithful Bible-believing churches holding worship services? Absolutely, we hope they do. That's different. And there's nothing wrong with with having joint services or or joint prayer events with other faithful, Bible believing churches. In fact, we've done it. In 2017, we had a a joint Reformation service up in uh, First Church Lansing. Great service. Nothing wrong with that. But it's to knowingly participate in a worship service or a spiritual event where they know that they're praying to an invented God or an imagined false god. That's idolatry. And the Bible teaches it's demonic. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Well, there's one more firm answer in here that we can apply as we look at the end of this passage. And it's not a firm no, it's a firm yes. It's a firm yes. Look how Paul ends on giving glory to God. He says, do all to the glory of God. He says, in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved, very similar to what we saw at the end of chapter 9. So this is not just a one and done. This is a recurring theme for Paul. The, the, the tire just keeps rotating around and, and, and the nail hits the road. Dump, 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 dump. I have become all things to, to all people. By all means, I might save some. What is driving Paul here? Where does he get this? Why is he doing these things? The answer is in 11.1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. He's saying, follow the pattern that you see in me insofar as I'm imitating Christ. That's what's driving Paul. He's giving a firm answer on how to live out our lives in Christ. It's to push towards more Christ-likeness. Christ was the ultimate one who did not seek his own advantage. That's why Paul does it. Christ was the ultimate one who perfectly sought the advantage of many. That's why Paul does it. Christ was the, only, was the ultimate one who lived perfectly, who died and rose from the dead. Paul, Christ is the only one who lived so that many might be saved. That's why Paul's doing it. It's Christ-likeness. You see, Jesus lived his entire life in perfect obedience to the law. Every command of God perfectly obeyed. He worshipped God perfectly. He followed God perfectly. He kept, the, he kept the Lord's Day perfectly. How many of us can say that? None. No one. His actions and his thought life were perfectly pure and holy his entire life. How many of us can say that? None. He spoke and answered truthfully his entire life. He was perfectly content. He never complained or grumbled once about his life situation. How many of us could do that? None. Of course not. But that is what God requires. If we were to go out in the parking lot and everybody was given a basketball and we said, go ahead and throw this, not... Distance, but vertical height. Throw it as high as you can in the air. Each one of us would throw the basketball and some of us would be able to get it off the ground a few feet, maybe even a few yards. Some of us who are a little older with shoulder issues might get it up just a couple of feet maybe. And then some of us who are really, really young that are maybe not even school yet, they may be able to throw it up a couple inches. But even if we brought in the strongest, most athletic person alive, and we gave them the same challenge, they would throw it up in the air, and they would probably beat everybody here in church today, but it would still be measurable. It's not like they're going to throw it past a few hundred yards or anything like that. And then we were told, well, actually, the goal is to make a basket. we've erected a, a hoop and backboard on the moon, and your goal is to sink the shot. You give one try, here you go. And under those circumstances, of course, we would all fail. Jesus Christ took the ball and made the shot, nothing but net, in one try. Perfect righteousness his entire life. He did what no one else could do. And we can look around and say, well, at least I didn't, you know, I got a little higher than that person. Yeah, I know this person got a little higher than me, but I'm still, I think, in in the running, right? No. You have to make the shot. Everything's riding on it. You either make that shot or you're in hell for eternity. You see, Jesus made the shot. Jesus achieved perfect righteousness. Are, Are you listening? Jesus achieved perfect righteousness God demands perfect righteousness, or we go to hell forever. We do not have perfect righteousness, no matter how high we can throw the basketball. Jesus has it. God demands it. We need it. That's why Paul is spending all his energy on trying to save some. He's saying, Look, I need you to make this connection. You stand condemned under the law, you need the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Because on the day, God will demand that. And unless you have that, you're going to hell. So I want you to turn and put your faith in Jesus Christ. When you do that, God promises to credit or impute that righteousness to you. Now, we all know you're a sinner. But God promises to give you the perfect righteousness of of faith. The The perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ to you by faith. That's why it's so important. We cannot live good enough lives to gain admittance into the kingdom of God. None of us. None of us. Mary, the mother of Jesus, sinner, going to hell except for the righteousness of Christ. Moses, sinner, going to hell except for the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Abraham, sinner, going to hell except for the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Paul, the apostle Paul, sinner, going to hell except for the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And Paul knew this, he was very upfront about it. Philippians 3, 8 and 9. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. I can't throw the basketball that high. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, I believe and it is counted or reckoned to me. Not I have it or I earned it. Jesus also went willingly to the cross to give himself as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. So not only does does God demand that perfect righteousness and only Christ has it, but we need our sin forgiven. We we have a sin nature and we have committed sin in our life, all of us. That needs to be dealt with first. Christ did that on the cross. His sin, or excuse me, his blood was a covering or atonement for our our sin, so that when God looks at us, not only by faith do we have the righteousness of Christ credited to us, but our sin is covered, dealt with, done away with. The penalty that we deserve for our sin, which is the wrath of God in eternity, in hell, has been poured out on Jesus Christ, on the cross, and dealt with, with finality. So here's the thing. We can either continue on and stand on our own righteousness and hope that everything works out in the end, or we can pay attention to God's word and say, I need that righteousness of Jesus Christ. I need the forgiveness of Christ. I'm going to repent and believe in Jesus. That's that's where we're at. That's what Paul means when we see at the end of chapter 10 that they may be saved That's what Paul's talking about. Being saved from the penalty of sin. Being saved from the wrath of God. We are saved from God, the wrath of God. We are saved by God, the work of Jesus Christ, the call of the Holy Spirit. And we are saved for God. Once we're in Christ, we are to live Christ-like, following him in response to what he's done for us. That's what it means to be saved. Are you saved? Are you saved? Are you in Christ? If so, then you have the righteousness of Christ and you have the forgiveness of your sins. If you're not in Christ, you have neither of those things. God will demand it. Firm answer. Should we repent and believe in Jesus Christ? That's a firm yes. Yes. Once saved, should we imitate Christ and use all means to save others? Save others. Another firm yes. Yes. We are to do all to the glory of God, not seeking our own advantage, but the advantage of many, that they may be saved. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we do not want to miss the purpose of your revelation to us. And although there are many gems and jewels to be mined, And to be appreciated and applied. The overarching theme of scripture is salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. To be saved by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. Father, if there's anyone here today who has not done that, I pray that you are calling them right now. Convicting them of their sin. Revealing their need for the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And Father, for those of us who are in Christ, I pray that you would impress upon our hearts the urgency of living for Christ, the urgency of be, becoming Christ-like in the sense of, of doing all things so that people may be saved. This is not coming from some sort of elitist position of, of we know something they don't know. This is coming from the attitude of, of one bigger telling another bigger where to find food. Of, of people who have been forgiven telling other people where to be forgiven. Father, we ask that you would apply this, this word to our hearts and that you would be glorified. Amen.